I want to get hyped up and energized. So I listen to music that I would always want to dance to anytime I hear it. I have a pre-presentation playlist. I will play that music and that gets me in a hyped up, energized frame of mind. I was driving, I was by myself in my car. I was listening to Mariah Carey's song. I was singing with her. I pulled up at a stoplight and on one side of me was a car of black women. On the other side of me was a car of white women. And out of nowhere, I flipped out because I wasn't sure who I should try to be the same as. Should I try to fit in with the, the black women in this car or should I try to fit in with the white women in this car? You are absolutely right that it is a natural behavior for us to um, compare ourselves to others. I am a biracial woman. My biological father was black. My biological mother was white and I'm adopted by a white family. I've always known that I'm adopted and I'm very loved in my family. When I was a little girl, we lived in a white neighborhood, predominantly white neighborhood. I was really good friends with my next door neighbor who was seven years old. I was five, she was seven. One of the things that she would say is, you don't belong here, Wendy, you're different. I wonder if they think that I'm smart. What about me? What do I think? Hello folks, I'm Lou. And in this episode, we have Sid in conversation with Professor Wendy Corbett, uh, who is a professor of management at Duke University. She has been researching on the topic of belongingness for more than 10 years. We have three main topics to discuss in this episode. Number one, what is belonging? And what does it mean with respect to oneself, uh, their social circles, and their professional life? Number two, we discuss Professor Wendy's experience with meeting her role model, uh, former U.S. President Barack Obama. And number three, what it takes to present effectively. So, Professor Wendy, let's get started. I think uh, belongingness, the word, the term, we, everyone knows about it. Everyone knows the general term, but there's so much depth into that word. Let's begin with like the definition of belongingness. What is belongingness? That's actually one of the questions I sought out uh, to answer when I started my path into what creates a sense of belonging in our world. And what I found is that from all of the sources that I looked at, um, that pretty much everybody had their own definition of belonging. And what I found is that I couldn't find one that, that captured everything that I thought needed to be a part of it. So I created my own definition of belonging that pulls from multiple sources. For me, that definition is belonging is that sense of safety and security that results when we feel valued, when we feel seen and heard by the people around us, and when we are part of something that is meaningful, that is larger than ourselves. So that's the definition that I use in my research and in my work with organizations and with people. Right. That's really interesting. I think like the main terms I get out of that is like safety, value and like meaningfulness. Mm -hmm. And like me coming from India, I've stayed a better part of my life in one city, in one locality. But I think uh, I've taken like safety and like uh, value for uh, granted. Like I've never thought about it in depth. Why did you think about like belongingness and seek out like un to understand more about belongingness? Well, I actually started looking at belonging from my own personal experience. Sort of, I'm the the center of the radar or of the ripple effect. So I actually started looking at belonging from my own personal perspective. I realized that I had a voice in my head that told me that 
if there's ever a time where you think that I'm different from you, then I wouldn't belong. And, I, and that voice ruled every behavior, every decision I made mm -hmm. for more than 35 years. I, I, was, um, I was always terrified that I would not belong. Mm -hmm. And as I discovered that voice, as I started to um, combat that voice and counter what that voice was telling me, I realized how much energy and how much of my focus was spent in your head trying to figure out how how you saw me so that I could be the same as you, so that I could change my behavior or the clothes that I wore, my values, so that I could convince you that we were the same. That takes up a tremendous amount of energy. So as I, um, as I discovered that and started working on creating my own voice that's louder than the other voice, I started to feel so much lighter and I really started becoming who I really am, not who you are. Um, and I, I really blossomed and became myself. And I realized that this happens with many of us. So I wanted to start um, sharing my experience so that other people who had similar experiences could find the courage to maybe do it themselves. That got me interested in what we can do for ourselves to help us feel like we belong. I also, with my background in organizational psychology, which is essentially the, uh, the psychology of the workplace, mm -hmm. I got interested in what creates a culture of belonging at work. So I, I started looking outward beyond myself and started studying what what are the specific behaviors that we can uh, that we can do or not do to create that sense of security, that sense of value to help others feel safe to be who they are, um, and so that that is how I got interested in what creates a culture of belonging at work and beyond. Right. So what I'm understanding from what you said so far is like a voice that says like, hey, like this person is different. Uh, he or she is very different from me. And, uh, you know, I seek validation in terms of what that person thinks of me. And I think generally this starts from school. Like, you know, I, I've thought about this, like when you say that, hey, like this person dresses like this or this, per uh, this person speaks like this, I think I've done. Uh, especially with respect to handwriting, like, you know, we used to write a lot of notes. I would see other people who would write beautiful notes and I'm like, why am I not writing like that and try to copy that? So don't you think it's like human behavior to think that way? Like, hey, like, you know, this person is doing something very nice or like wearing better clothes. I want to copy that or emulate that. So uh, how do we know if uh, this is, like fine or not fine? Like how do you differentiate that? You are absolutely right that it is a natural behavior for us to sort of um, compare ourselves to others. Yeah. That in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It's part of what we do as, as social beings. Where it becomes unhealthy is where we are, we derive our value based on others. Right. Uh, more so than, than ourselves. Right. So at that point, it becomes unhealthy. Got it. That's very interesting. So that's a very interesting point where, like, as you said, like, you don't, uh, uh, you don't try to value yourself from others. You try to seek valid, uh, validation from, like, say, your inner self or, like, based on what you think about yourself. Uh, from your personal journey, like, as you said, like, you created a voice that was louder than the voice which said that, hey, uh, you're different from others. How, how did you go about understanding, like, what was your journey like there where you had to create, like, a louder voice? Well, I want to be clear that, that, yes, my voice is louder than the other voice. Yeah. But that other voice is still there. Um, and for me, 
um, to tell you a little bit about my story and where that voice comes from, I am in my early 50s. I am a biracial woman. My biological father was black. My biological mother was white. And I'm adopted by a white family. I've always known that I'm adopted and I'm very loved in my family. Um, my, my concern about not feeling like I belong doesn't come from my family. What happened was when I was when I was a little girl, we lived in a white neighborhood, predominantly white neighborhood, and I was really good friends with my next door neighbor who was seven years old. I was five. She was seven. And we would play all the time. And, you know, we were we were um, great friends until we got into a fight and then we we would bicker at each other. One of the things that she would say is, you don't belong here, Wendy. You're different. And I internalized that. I didn't, I didn't realize this, but that became my guiding belief. That is the voice in my head. When I discovered that voice and whose it was, and I realized that my own little voice was really tiny, just a little whisper, I started to practice using my voice Whenever I heard Laura, the actual, the voice is that of a young, uh, of a girl named Laura. So what I did to build up my voice is anytime I would start to think, oh, I wonder if they think that I'm smart. Do they think that I'm, you know, pretty? Do they think that I'm rich? Whatever that, do they think I'm fill in the blank? That's a cue for me that I'm thinking too much about what you think about me. Right. So when I hear that voice saying, I wonder if they think I'm fill in the blank, my own voice will come back and say, what about me? What do I think I am? And that helps me kind of shush the, right. the other voice, the unhealthy voice. Um, so that's the practice that I started using a cue and my cue is when I start thinking too much about what other people think about me. Not, not all the time, but when I, when I realize it too much and when I start to worry about it, right. um, that, is a, that is a sign for me that I'm thinking too much about um, what other people think about me. Right. So uh, what are your thoughts on like currently... Uh, with the rise of social media, like people are always on their phones, people are looking at others' stories, Instagram stories, what they are doing in their professional lives, personal lives. There's always this constant comparison, like, hey, this person's got the job here or moved to this beautiful place. So uh, isn't it difficult to always have that voice, say, like, what do I want? Because there's always, like social media or like some other source which shows like hey like uh, there's always that bit of uh, constant comparison so it takes a lot of hard work like a lot of effort to you know get your voice and be like hey what do I actually want so how do you do that I, what encourages me is that when I start comparing myself to others I feel emotionally heavy not right. not weight wise, but it's it's painful. It's a um, a weight. That's not a good sign. Hmm. When I start thinking, what do I want? What do I think about me? I automatically feel lighter. So hmm. that's the feeling that I want. For me, it's the I find that the more I compare myself to others the less happy I am. Right. And I have a choice. I can't stop you from comparing me to other people. True. But I can control me comparing me to other people. Right. And that's, you know, I, I spend very little energy when I'm, when I'm in a good space. I spend very little energy um, trying to think about who you are comparing me to or what you're comparing me to uh, and try to focus on being 
the best person I can be based on my own criteria and not yours. Got it. And I think uh, at the start of this podcast, you, uh, you know, set a definition of belongingness and you said that, you know, you went around, you researched and you saw that multiple people had multiple definitions. So what were some like interesting insights you th- or shocking insights that you saw about like communities thinking about belongingness? Well, I, what I've found really interesting in my research is, and the reason I started on, on my research, which is focused on identifying specific behaviors that contribute to a sense of belonging in a community. Right. What I discovered is um, that not, what, what surprised me is that Instead of these being, um, the behaviors being big, huge, expensive, magnanimous, send you to a week-long trip in Tahiti to build belonging, to say that we care about you or that we value you, it's actually the whole, totally other end of the spectrum. It is the tiny behaviors, the simple acts the simple practices that we do with each other that show that you, you know, that show that you see me as a person, that you value what I have to say. So that's been a big surprise. Whereas I thought I was going to come up with this um, and surface this list of big behaviors that organizations could could initiate or implement. Yeah. To build a sense of belonging in their in their organizational culture, it's actually simple behaviors like like making eye contact, like nodding to show that you're listening, you know, that to show that you hear what I'm saying, where you demonstrate that you're interested in me. So that's been a really big surprise. And what has been like the top behavior that's uh, helped people to? feel uh, a sense of belonging with each other? So what I found in my research as I was reading, listening to podcasts and um, absorbing and processing a lot of the information that's already out there on belonging, what I found is that there is a lot of, um, a lot of ingredients that go into creating a sense of belonging. And they can be very different depending on the industry, depending on the size of the company, depending on on a lot of things. But what I found that is consistent is that for us to feel a sense of belonging, we need to feel connected to the people around us. That's our peers and our leaders. We need to feel respected. We need to feel that, that what we bring to the table, what we contribute makes a difference. And you know that it makes a difference. So we need to feel connected. We need to feel respected. And we need to feel protected or safe to, to say, I don't know, mm. or to say, I need some help right. or to say, I made a mistake. Right. So the behaviors that um, any behaviors that say that build connection, that say, I see you, I hear you, I'm interested in you as a person not just as an employee, not just as a leader, but as a human being. Those are the behaviors that build belonging. And the uh, one of the ways that I'm doing research is with a survey. And I, I specifically intentionally ask open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. I ask for a simple um, example of what's something that your your colleagues do or your leaders do that make you feel more connected to them. Right. And there are lots of answers to that, but one of the most common ones is I feel connected to the people I work with when we talk about stuff that's not work. Mm. You know, and so that's that's one of the most common responses is I really like when we talk about non-work stuff. I think that is so true because... Uh... After my undergrad, I worked uh, in a semiconductor company where 
most of the people in my team were like 10 years older to me so the mm-hmm. conversations they were having were very different they were ha- talking about kids schools etc and i had no common topic so i always felt disconnected so i think that is very true where like uh, you know talking to other people and sharing those uh, small conversations like the water cooler conversations mm-hmm. i think really really helps and I was watching one of your videos, and the other important behavior that uh, you spoke about was uh, the act of listening. Like you know, mm-hmm. listening uh, helps people feel more connected, more uh, you know, more belonging to an organization or to a team. Why do you think listening is so hard for people in general? I think that listening is one of the greatest gifts that we can give someone. it's specifically or in part because of what you just described it's really hard for us to listen we yeah. have a lot of distractions you know we've got okay. a phone uh ringing we've got text coming through the phone we've got email beeping at us we've got you know 15 browsers open all of them wanting to give us more information right so when we can can set all of that aside and give someone our attention it is a huge gift that they receive as you know it it shows that we respect you and it shows it's a way for us to connect because we're actually listening right. it's sad that it's i'm i'm known as a as a great listener and it's sa- i'm kind of sad that it stands out so mm. much because i wish more people knew the value of setting aside you know everything else closing the computer making eye contact putting your phone out of view for yourself and for the person you're speaking with all of that goes a long way to say i'm giving you my undivided attention right. i think that listening the giving someone the gift of listening is giving them your full attention and when we've got so much fighting for our attention when we can give that attention to you know to a person it conveys a lot mm. so how do you make sure that you know you always give your undivided attention as you said people uh, praise you for being a great listener apart from you know keeping your phone aside what additional things do you do to make sure that you're listening to them intently i close my browsers i i close my computer if we weren't talking um via computer right now mm-hmm. i would have my computer closed i will sometimes take notes so if you're in the middle of a story and and i hear something that i want to ask you about right i won't interrupt you but mm-hmm. i may make a note of it um and and come back to it because i do that i may also at the beginning of our conversation say um you know you may notice me looking down for a moment that's i'm just taking a quick note because there's something i want to go back to so okay. i let you know that if if pure, if momentarily i we break eye contact that's why hmm got it got it i also ask Uh, I ask questions. I'm listening. And so I ask you questions that that help me learn more about you and your experience. Right. Right. Yeah. I think the major problem that at least kids of my generation have is keeping your phone aside, keeping your laptop aside and like just uh watching them and uh making that eye contact. I think that's very important to learn definitely. and uh, going back to the topic of belongingness again going up uh, one step above when i think about belongingness there's like you know belongingness to the self like uh, do i actually belong in this planet and then there's like belongingness with friends like am i actually part of this friend group and the third one is like i'm a uh, belongingness to the workplace right uh, mm-hmm. uh, am i actually connected do i feel connected to the workplace what i want to do is like go through each one of them because i feel like there's so much to uncover because when i came to duke i came from india it was my first time coming from uh, coming to a new country and i was all over the place because i had no clue about the people here the culture here so i had to learn a lot 
so i want to start with personal belongingness like how do you make sure that you always feel uh, you know feel one with like yourself for me what i focus on in terms of belonging from a personal perspective it's um part of it is um is faith that i am here for a purpose that there is a reason that i'm here for some people that reason or that purpose comes from a religious or a spiritual perspective um for me it comes from in part from from faith in the universe that mm-hmm. there is a reason that i'm here um and i'm tapped into that reason so it's um part of it when i question whether i belong somewhere i first remind myself that it's okay to question it i'm a strong person i'm a confident person so sometimes when that little voice that tells me i don't belong you know um i i may sometimes want to bop myself over the head of come on wendy you know <laughs> so i may may um judge myself for not being stronger. So to counter that, I focus on soothing my spirit to to remind myself that I am a human being, which means that I have all the whole range of emotions and questioning whether I belong and sometimes being anxious, questioning mm. whether I belong somewhere, it's part of just shows that I'm human and that's okay. Right. Um And so I part of my message when I speak when I do my professional speaking is wanting to convey that message that even for people who are confident, people who are leaders, people who are professional speakers, if you end up in a situation where you question your own sense of belonging, not to judge yourself for it, but to handle yourself with grace. Right. Um, yeah. Wow, that was actually really helpful. Thank you so much. And like the second part, I want to go in, into is like social, like social belongingness, like say with your family, uh, friends, etc. Where like especially uh, as you grow older, like the number of friends you have become lesser. There are more social circles, but like very few close friends. So, how do you deal with belongingness uh, in a social setting? I look for. real ways to connect with others you're going to see a theme the connect respect and protect is a yeah. constant theme in our our personal sense of belonging our social sense of belonging and our our work sense of belonging so i look for ways to deepen connection um to I look for ways to say thank you to demonstrate appreciation for friendship and for kind things that people do for me. And I look to um to create a safe space where we can share our imperfections and you know, I can say what I can't believe I messed up <laughs> and can say share a mistake, share a right. doubt. um with others and be vulnerable right because i find that being vulnerable with others deepens that a uh, sense of connection um and deepens trust among people right so another way that in a social situation another way that i um look to build belonging is to be trustworthy hmm. nowadays you know um we can do lots to tell people's secrets with social media and email threads. So I am I always aim to be trustworthy and not share information that isn't isn't mine to share. Especially right. simply to get a like or a thumbs up on social media. Hmm, very interesting, yeah. Uh when you talk about like uh sharing like real things to be more connected, what do you mean by real things? I mean something other than the fact that i like pistachio ice cream 
you know, something oh. beyond surface. Um, and so when I work with organizations, one of the, the ways that we explore practices that they might implement to help, to help build a sense of belonging is to have um, what I call meaningful conversations. And what I mean by that is um, sharing a prompt that says, one of the most meaningful um, experiences I've had since I've worked here is, and then that's a, that's a real conversation. That's not, um, that's not a surface conversation. Okay. And when someone shares something that's meaningful for them, that can naturally ignite a conversation that deepens connection. Hmm, that is true, right? So I think like the counterfact for this is like with respect to meaningful conversations is sometimes there are few people who deeply believe in this and every time they want to have a meaningful conversation with another person, it's like, hey, like, you know, there should be some substance in this conversation. If we are having it, uh, we shouldn't have like conversations for fun and stuff like that. Like, what are your thoughts about that? I think all kinds of conversations when, when they're used um, appropriately can deepen connection. Even if we're talking about work, even if right. we're talking about something that's, um, you know, that is professional or that is sort of higher level kind of surfacey, um, we can still be genuine. We can still demonstrate interest. Uh, we can still ask questions. Not everything has to be that deep, meaningful conversation right makes sense yeah and the last part which i want to talk about in depth in these three things was uh in terms of belongingness within a workplace you've done a lot of work with leaders to incorporate this into their cultures so what do you think is missing in like organizations or like within leadership to inculcate that belongingness like what do you think is missing what I see with many of the organizations that I work with, and particularly with the leaders in those organizations, is that many leaders think that for them to build a sense of belonging in their workplace, it's going to take this huge, long, organization-wide cultural transformation initiative, right. which will take years to plan. And that's not the case. So that's one of the reasons why I'm undertaking my research to identify the specific small, simple behaviors that build belonging because right. I want to I counter that thought that, you know, it's too big to, um, it is too big to address. We don't have the time, we don't have the budget um, or the resources to address, you know, uh, to build a sense of belonging because... We don't have time to create this huge transformation, um, this huge cultural transformation. Two minutes at the beginning of a meeting where we, you know, where we do a genuine connection, where we ask how people are doing, where we ask one person to share something meaningful that's that they've experienced in their life in the past week. Um, two minutes and at an occasional meeting can go a long way to to build connection, respect, um, and a sense of psychological safety at work. Hmm. That is so true. I think uh, recently I did an internship uh, uh, at this company called Life360. And every two weeks we had a product weekly meeting. And the director, whenever he starts his meeting, he either starts out with a joke or he, he talks about like how his daughter, uh, you know, bumped his car or crashed his car and asks like what others are doing and then starts the meeting, which is always on a lighter note. Mm -hmm. I think it reduces that cognitive like load on your brain is like, oh, this is going to be a serious meeting. I have to concentrate. I think that it always lightens and improves the connection. That is so true. And the question I have here is, when you consult with these leaders and you say about these like simple things, right? Like, as you said, like the first two minutes, use it to, you know, have that connection. People are generally hard to change. Like people don't change so easily. And when you tell such behaviors, uh, people feel it be, it might be forced 
like you know why am i doing it i'm doing it out of compulsion i actually don't care uh, what they did during their weekends so uh, why don't we just get on to the meeting like how do you tackle that one of the things that i do when i work with leaders and organizations is many times they they come to me and say we want to um to build a sense of belonging with our direct reports so right. you know the leaders are here looking at at how to build connection here or how to build right. belonging here right. i always start with the leaders hmm. so when i when i do leadership retreats i um one of the things i do is i will survey the leaders and i get examples from them uh specific examples from them and as part of the program that we do together they see anonymously they see examples of um what it is that their colleagues do people sitting around this table what what it is that they do that means a lot to them that that contributes right. to building a sense of belonging and one of the questions i i ask is um i ask the leaders to complete this statement i feel vulnerable or unprotected at work when and then they fill in the blank hmm. when i share those examples with the leaders they are astonished that right. there is a lack of belonging at this table because they came into the room thinking oh we're going to we're going to um focus outward we're going to focus on our direct reports when you've got to start in the leadership circle so right. that experience opens their eyes to the to um seeing that you know how prevalent a lack of belonging is and how important mm. it is and what it what the the simple behaviors are like sending someone a you know a um a quick email or a text saying did a great job on that presentation or can i get your thoughts i'm struggling with this idea i really appreciate right. your perspective can you give me 5 minutes to to let me know your thoughts right. so when yeah. they they see that there is a sense of belonging there are some things that they that where there is a strong sense of belonging at the leadership table but there are also some things that they need to work on that their own experience helps them shift their perspective for the value of of um a sense of belonging and how it can contribute to employees wanting to stay longer employee loyalty employee engagement productivity innovation you know um when employees feel like they belong they will go that extra mile mm. they will choose to go the extra mile um and who doesn't need employees who are willing to go the extra mile instead of um continually dealing with turnover and the time it takes to to find Tired. new people the time it takes to bring them on board the time it takes to ramp them up to get them to the point where they are contributing to you know to the goals of the organization hmm that is true could you give a specific example of how do you do this like say i'm a company i come to you and say hey my i don't feel like there's enough belongingness with my team and i i need your help like what what is the process you go through yeah i can i can use a, a company that i'm working with now um uh um i'll leave it at that it's a small company but what we're doing is um i we're working with many of the employees at different levels and um what we've scheduled some workshops and what happens is before the workshop everyone who's attending it um will complete a survey okay. then um as part of the program as part of the workshop we define what belonging is we um uh, we do some some small group discussions about how belonging shows up um in your work day and then i share with them five of the most common responses from the over 1000 survey results that i have so far here are five of the most common ways that 
um, other survey um, takers have said, you know, that their that their colleagues, five of the, the most common things that their colleagues or leaders do that help them feel connected. I will show them five of the most common from the over a thousand survey results. And then I will also show them five interesting results from their survey responses. So they see five responses from that people in the room sitting around the table have shared. So it's really helpful for them to see um, survey results, you know, from, from beyond their work, but it is incredibly insightful for them to see, oh my gosh, I had no idea that mm. someone feels thrown, someone in this room feels like they've been thrown under the bus. Um, so it's powerful for um, for participants in the program to see examples from their own world. Um, and so we we look at at some of those responses, and then we we kind of reverse engineer. And um, as a group, we come up with some specific um, specific things that they can do. They can add to. Uh, meeting agendas. They can set aside time once a month for Face Palm Fridays, um, you know, or what other things they can do that will generate stronger opportunities to connect, respect, and protect. Right. And do you think with uh, the shift of work to remote work has uh, increased the need of belongingness within employees and more companies and more leaders are looking for different ways to make sure that belongingness happens? I do think that belonging is increasingly important today. It is true for people who work in an office building. It is also true for remote workers. It's also true for hybrid workers. Um, so yes, it our overall need to focus on a sense of belonging is definitely increased lately. Right. Um, and what was the other, there was another part of the question that I think of. Uh, no, uh, th that was it. And the other question I had, I think this is the last question before uh, we move on to other topics apart from belongingness is, were there any experiences that you had where people thought that there was a sense of belongingness missing? But like when you, uh, you know, worked on that project and consulted on that project, like it was actually not belongingness that was missing. It was totally different, like some something else that was happening. Did you have any experience as such? I do. I actually worked with a, a company with a, the senior leaders, um, global senior leaders um, in a company. And they, again, they wanted to focus on building a sense of belonging um, among their direct reports, but I focused on the leaders first. Mm. And in that leadership retreat, there was, um, there was an employee who said, anonymously, who said, um, this person is a bully. Mm. And so that came out and everyone was surprised that the person had, you know, that everyone was surprised that, um, that a person was named, but it was kind of like the elephant in the room. Someone, this person had the courage to name the elephant in the room mm. and it was so it wasn't as much of a sense of belonging as it was someone being aggressive and right. disrespectful um so that that's very different from belonging so what do you what do you specifically do in such situations do you leave it leave it to the leadership to take care of it or how do you deal with it in this case i i made recommendations to the the people who brought me in Right. Um, and I, I, I know that this person is still employed with the company. 
Um, and I, I know that they have made some changes. They've followed some of the recommendations that I've made, uh, but not all of them. Right, right. This is really interesting. Like, as I said in the beginning of the podcast, like, there's so much depth into belongingness that we spent 40 minutes talking about it. <laughs> so I want to shift gears and talk about this interesting story you had where you had the chance of meeting former President Barack Obama. And uh, I remember my friend telling me that it was one of your goals, dreams to meet him. So tell us about that experience. How did you make it happen? What was the experience meeting him, talking to him? Sure. So it was definitely a, um, it was a highlight of my life to have the opportunity to meet him. I won't say that it was a goal because I, I don't know that I would have ever thought it was possible. Right. But one of the reasons it was so important for me to have the opportunity to meet him is because, because I'm a biracial person and because I was raised in a, in a white family, and in our society, at least in the U.S., there have not been many adults who are biracial who, in my opinion, are their whole, you know, are authentic and who present themselves in a way that I admire. Right. And President Obama, former President Obama, is one of those people. Uh, he is also biracial. He's... Um, raised in a largely white society. Uh, and I've always appreciated that he, for me, he comes across as genuinely human, not necessarily trying to be more, be perceived as more black or as more white. He has just seemed to come across as a male human being. Um, and so he has been a role model for me to focus on presenting who I am as a person. And so for me to have the opportunity to get to meet him and let him know that uh, was, was life-changing. Um, so I, ha I got that opportunity because I was in a leadership role. He was the keynote speaker for, um, for an international conference that was hosted by an organization, the Association for Talent Development. It's an organization for corporate training um, that I've been involved with forever. And I happen to be on the International Board of Directors for ATD or the Association for Talent Development the year that he was the keynote speaker. So as part of the contract with him, uh, there was the agreement that he would meet with 50 people. Mm -hmm. And because I was on the, the International Board of Directors, I got to be one of those 50 people. Wow, that's amazing. And what are the conversations like when you met him? Uh, what did you talk to him? It was a very short conversation. I was probably right. under a minute from beginning to end. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, he shook my hand. He asked me my name and where I was from. He said that he really liked Raleigh. It's a nice town. And, um, and then I got to tell him that he, um, as a biracial adult, that he's been a role model for me. And he, he um, thanked me and said that he really appreciated that. And, right. and we took our picture. <laughs> Do you think, uh, you know, I've never personally met any of my role models. But like you've met your role model. Do you think anything changed after meeting that role model, like mentally or like things you do? Did you do anything differently? For me, it reiterated um, the importance of saying thank you. Right. Um, and it's, you know, I, I don't know how much it meant to him, but it meant a lot to me to be able to thank him. Um, mm. and that, this, that's probably the biggest thank you I've ever given in my life, but it reminds me of, you know, saying thank you, not only contributes to the other person, but it contributes to you as well. Um, so I think, 
I think that's probably the, the biggest way that I've been changed by it. But I also really appreciate that that opportunity came because I was in a volunteer role. I've been part of the that association as a volunteer, as a member and as a volunteer for over 20 years. There's, and I got that opportunity because I was in a role of service um, okay. and it was genuine service. It is a passion of mine. It is a, an honor for me to give back. And I got this opportunity because I, because of, of a volunteer role that was important to me. That's amazing. Yeah. I hope one day I meet uh, one of my role models and I get to share my story of like what things changed. And so who's, tell me, who's one of your role models? I think initially when I was a kid, I used to you know think of these uh, superstars, movie stars or like cricket players, sports players as my role models. But as I grew up, I started thinking of my dad as my role model because he's worked hard, like he portrays all the values, uh, you know, the, the things you need to do to be successful. So I've always learned from him. But uh, apart from him, if I have to meet anyone, there's this one cricketer called Virat Kohli. Uh, he's an Indian cricketer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he upholds the practice of discipline, uh, go after what you want. So it would be great to meet him. And I think another person, like say in the tech field, at least for me right mm -hmm. now would be Elon Musk. Like mm -hmm. he, that man has built like five great companies. So uh, it would be an honor to meet him as well. Okay. So yeah. Uh, Professor Wendy, the next question I want to ask you is, you are a public speaker. So are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm right over the edge of the right over the line on being an extrovert. So uh, I, there are times when I love being around people and um, it really energizes me to have conversations. But then there are times where, uh, where I don't want to be around other people, where I need to um, be away from most people and from outside um stimulation to okay. recharge so i i am i am both but i am just a little bit more extroverted right so on occasions where you have a public speaking session you have to deliver in front of a bunch of people but you don't have that energy like say on that particular day what do you usually do like to make sure that you deliver your best uh, presentation or your speech uh, i have a pre-presentation um, practice. Part of that is, includes listening to music that mm -hmm. gets me hyped up, that gets me energized. I know that for some people, before they do a presentation, they need to calm down. They want right. to ground themselves and, and um, calm down. For me, I want to get hyped up and energized so I listen to music that is um, that is music that I would always want to dance to. Anytime I hear it, I have a pre-presentation playlist. So I will oh. I will play that music, and that gets me in a hyped up, energized um, frame of mind. I focus on thinking about why I was brought to this opportunity and what the people in the seats, what my audience needs to hear from me that will help them when they leave the auditorium, when they, you know, right. when they go back to work or when they go back home, what is it that I can share with them that will improve their life? And mm. it can be small. I don't put a huge uh, burden or a huge right. responsibility on myself. I want right. to share I want you to leave my presentation feeling like, oh my gosh, I can do that. Yeah, right. True. So, so what is your go-to songs or go-to playlist before you deliver your presentation? Um, one of the songs is, for, is um, Dream Lover from Mariah oh. Carey. And the reason that is a go-to song for me is because 
that was the song that was playing on the radio when I had the stoplight experience. Oh, what is my that? My stoplight story. Um, so the stoplight story is, um, you've, you've seen the video that explains part of it, but the, the stoplight story is that I was, um, I was driving, I was by myself in my car. I was listening to Mariah Carey's song on the radio and I was singing with her. I pulled up at a stoplight and on one side of me was a car of black women. On the other side of me was a car of white women. And out of nowhere, I flipped out because I wasn't sure who I should try to be the same as. Should I try to fit in with the, the black women in this car or should I try to fit in with the white women in this car? Now, it wasn't these women saying, you need to fit with us or you don't fit with us. Okay. It was me. It was my head. And it, it was at that point when my, my voice said, what about me? What do mm. I want? And the answer to that question was, I want to sing this song with Mariah Carey on the radio. <laughs> so that is, uh, that's one of my go-to songs. And um, I've got a couple others. But the idea is um, to have, have music for me, to, to listen to some music beforehand that gets me in the right frame of mind, that helps me bring the kind of energy that I want to give to my audience. Right. And speaking about presentations, you've delivered a ton of them to especially to leaders, to uh, various uh, company employees. What are some learnings you've had, like, you know, by delivering presentations and like, what are some tips to you know deliver great presentations? And some of the consulting that I do with leaders who are preparing for presentations, what I often hear is, oh my gosh, this audience is out to get me. You know, we, we think that the audience is against us, um, that they are looking for every tiny little flaw. That's just not true. You know, I, I encourage the people that I work with, um, even, even the students that I work with, you know, to think about when someone else is standing in the front of the room or when they're on stage, do you want them to fail? Right. No, you don't. No, you yeah. want to hear something that's beneficial for you. You want to be entertained. You want to be inspired. You want to be educated. You don't want it to be a waste of your time. Okay. So the audience is is rooting for you. The audience is cheering for you. They want you to succeed. So that shift, being able to make that one shift and remembering that the audience is on your side. Mm-hmm. Um, is can often go a long way to help alleviate a lot of the the anxiety that many people feel before they do a big presentation. Right, right. Hmm. Uh, the other fact is that there are so many people with the fear of public speaking. I think like that's one of the biggest fears in the world where people are really scared to present in front of an audience. And I think the main reason is because there are so many eyes on you and like it's not a general setting that you're at. Uh, Like, did you have a fear of public speaking before? I probably did, but I've before I became a professional speaker, I was also um, I've been a trainer. And as a as a trainer, as a corporate trainer, you do a lot of presentations in smaller groups. So I've had over 20 years of experience, you know, delivering presentations to to audiences of all sizes. So I'm sure I'm not saying that I've never been um, anxious or nervous before a presentation. But I, I don't know that I would say that I had the same kind of fear that I've seen in, in others. Right. What would be that one tip you would give people who are fear of speaking publicly, uh, you know, to let go of that fear and do it authentically and, you know, without fear? I would say don't aim to, to get rid of the fear because Mm -hmm. I think that the fear is actually a good sign. It means that you are invested, that you want to do a good job, and okay. that's good. So I would that's one piece of advice is to 
Don't aim to not be afraid because then if you are afraid, you think, oh my gosh, I'm a, you know, and that actually shifts a lot of your mental energy. Right. I would also say um, to practice, say what you might say out loud, practice mm. out loud. I don't mean to memorize what you're going to say. I don't like the idea of memorizing something verbatim. But the idea of practicing out loud, and I would say um, the higher the stakes are for the presentation, the more you should practice out loud at least five times. Because what happens is as you are saying stuff out loud, your ears and your brain are hearing what you're saying, which helps your memory. Hmm. Saying it five times actually creates a deeper, um, like a, a it, you are um, remembering it. it. It creates a deeper memory for you than simply reading, simply, right. you know, silently reading. Um, and that means that the deeper the memory is, the easier it is to recall which means that there's less mental focus that you have right. to, to spend trying to remember what you're going to say, mm-hmm. which frees up uh, a lot of mental energy where, and you can focus that mental energy on connecting with your audience. Right. That is true. That is true. So as a consultant, uh, you help out a lot of leaders in delivering presentations. Uh, what are like three things that you, like what what are the patterns you've noticed with these uh, leaders when they're delivering presentations that you know you help them on i see many of them have way too much information on their slides mm-hmm. they also often end up using their slides as their script right. which is the number one thing that that audiences hate mm. is when there are so many words on the slide and when the the presenter reads the slides to them. So what I see is um, many speakers think that they need, uh, how am I going to know what to say if it's not on the slide? That's not the purpose of your slides. The fewer words there are on your slides, the, um, the less you'll come across as simply reading them. Right. So... Too many words on slides, um, uh, um, feeling a dependence on slides, and um, many leaders think they don't have the time to practice. They, you should see the the um, reactions I get when I say you should plan to practice out loud at least five times. When I say that, I don't mean that you need to be in the conference room or on the stage presenting, you know, uh, in in the the actual same um, um, environment where you're going to deliver your presentation. You can be driving your car and mm. practicing it out loud. You can be cooking. You can be in the gym. You know, on the on the treadmill. It doesn't matter where you are when you say it out loud, but it's literally the act act of your brain hearing what you're saying helps create deeper memory. Right. I think last question about the presentations part is generally when making slides, uh, as you said, you know, people generally put a lot of content, which is not effective. But I think the main problem people have is they don't know what content to remove. Like, do they remove the points or do they remove specific pictures? So how do you go about making your slides? So what I do, what what I've found is that as soon as we put something on the slide, we're committed to it being there. We think it needs to be there. So what I do is... Um, If I'm in a situation where I am going to have a handout or report, I will create the handout or the report first. Mm -hmm. That's where all the detail goes. So then when it comes to creating slides, when I open up PowerPoint, PowerPoint is it's um, creating slides is actually the last step in my presentation process. 
instead of the first step. I outline what I'm going to say. I may um, type up detail what I think I might say. I'll, I'll call it a script, but I, okay. it's, it's not a script. Um, then I will create the handout or the report. Then when I go into PowerPoint, instead of typing on the slide, I actually type the details in the slide notes. Hmm. And then I will, um, I will pull the essence or the gist, the key message of what all of that text is. And it's that key message, those short key phrases that go on the slide instead of the complete sentences and instead of the paragraphs that that might be in the handout or the report. Um, but the, the paragraphs don't go on the slide. Right. Got it. I think that was really insightful. Thank you so much for sharing. So I think this has been an amazing conversation. I've learned so much about belongingness and I want to thank you for doing that research for so much, so many years, because I think there are so many people who are not self-aware about like if they actually belong with oneself, with their community, workplace. And so thank you so much for doing that. And thank you so much for having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I have really enjoyed our conversation. I really thank you so much, it. Randy. Thank you so much. So this is it, folks. I hope you really enjoyed this conversation. I am Sid, and this is Lou.